Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to this bonus episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. Yeah, and just in case you missed it, be sure to check out part one of Sandbox Live with Dr. Jacqueline Bussey. But for now, here is the Q&A portion of our event from a few weeks back. You know, I want to open it up and, and just as you have questions, either in-house or online, make sure if you're in-house, raise your hand and we'll have somebody hand you a mic because we want we want this to happen. We do. Um, and then uh, I'll, you know, as and Chris will wave me down from the back if uh, as he gets it. Uh, but maybe just for, for starters, I mean, I read the book uh, a few weeks ago and, and you write about love. It's like you're describing a piece of art, <laughs> and it's short of experiencing it firsthand. It, like only the only thing we have is metaphors and symbolic lang language. So, so what was it like in the actual writing of this of this book? Yeah, it was like prayer. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a, it was a bomb. I think, you know, I'm one of those people. I don't really know what I really believe or think until I write it. Like things actually come to me. And I'm kind of a writer's nerd. So the space where I was writing the book, I put little post-it notes up, you know, cause I'm an extrovert and like sitting alone all day is so depressing. It's really hard for me to sit alone like that. And, but you have to do it because if I talk to you, then I won't talk to the page and I need to talk to the page to write the book. And so I wrote these notes that I got from other, you know, authors who had taught me how to how to complete a project like this. And one of them had said in her book, she's like, you know, when you're a writer, you're you need to be a straw. And so I had written this thing on my wall. I wrote, "Be the straw." And the way I interpret that is that is for me it means God, but it could if if you don't believe in God, it could just mean that the universe, you know. But that God wants certain things to be spoken. You know, there's certain stories, they need to be told. They, they need to be out in the world, you know? And so you're not the creator of them so much as you're the conduit for them. Like they're coming to you, you're just the straw. <laughs> you know, I know that sounds weird, but the world is really thirsty. Right? The world is thirsty for love without limits. I'm parched most of the time. How about you? Mm. You know, you watch the news. Oh, gosh, Twitter? Don't even get me started, right? Yeah, it's a blood so sport out there. It's a blood sport. Yeah. But writing is a bit of a blood sport, too. Yeah. You know, because you really, really have to, have to be willing, I think, to be a straw. Yeah. And that's not always easy. You know, I had a lot of tears went into this book. And it's funny when people say to me, like, which parts made them cry? I didn't really mean to make people cry that much, but people have been writing to me that I don't even know. They're like, I was sobbing on this. I do some lists in the book of, like, list things my mother taught me about uh, love. I sobbed nonstop writing that. Mm. And that came to me straight. I feel like that came to me from, from my mother somehow. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. everyone's like, I sobbed reading that. And I'm like, well... <laughs> There's the old saying, no tears in the author, no tears in the reader. And I think that's true. So, so as a prayer, you're like a straw. Um, yeah. Just to paraphrase, at one point you write, and kind of butchering it in some respects, but you'll know that your agape love is as big as God wants, uh, then you ultimately offend people. And just what is so offensive about limitless love? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess first I'll just say we can 
clearly see how offensive it is, right? Given what's, given what's happened. I mean, personally for me, you know, as a follower of Jesus, when I think about how Jesus offended people, I mean, people wanted to kill Jesus. This, this is for a reason, yeah. you know? We think of love as this like foofy little peachy little, you know, mm-hmm. like flower when Unicorns really, and rainbows. And yeah, right, yes. like yeah. rainbows and Skittles, yeah. you know? No, <laughs> right, you know? It's really, really mm. a multi-grain bread that not a lot of people want to eat, yeah. you know? So, yeah, you know, right? It's pretty hardcore and really, really good for you, but you still don't want it. Um, yeah, so I, I just feel like, I think what's offensive about it is we know in our heart of hearts that this is what the world needs. We know it's what God wants. But some people, it's just so hard, isn't it? It's just so hard to love people with whom we disagree or who are just so different than us. In the book, one of the things I say is like, you know, Loving people that we like is so easy. It feels like slipping on your most comfortable pair of jeans. But loving people we don't like feels like trying to put a pair of baby gap jeans on a hippo. <laughs> this is true, you know? Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just, it's really, really hard. And so our mind, even though we wouldn't say it out loud, maybe we want to make exceptions to love. Because it's just too offensive to think that, oh, but that person, look at what they do. And, and so it's very, I think, not, it's, we have a lot of double standards, yeah, yeah. which is not good. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to keep asking questions unless you all raise your hands. But, um, oh, please. Yeah. I know you're not that shy. Yeah, Look at yeah. you. Oh, there's one. Yay. Hey, so um, thank you very much for, uh, for coming here. It's really nice to see you. I enjoyed your book very much in particular. I really appreciated that you wrote about self-love. I think that gets missed a lot. Yes. And the balance that that is. And especially about how Christian messages about love sound to people who might have uh, come from a position of less than um, someone who's experienced abuse, how it sounds um, from a gender lens. I think that's really helpful. Yes. The thing I was wondering as I was reading about that, though, is... um, you know, some of the the traditional messages around, you know, you are the, the sort of um, messages meant for maybe powerful people that they should be less. I often find people who seem to be arrogant or even people in a powerful position, I often get the sense that they're there because they actually do carry a really deep shame. I'm not sure who those messages are good for. I was just sort of curious what your experience is from that side of it. Yeah. I appreciate your comment and the question because I think it's very compassionate, right? To see that most people carry around deep wounds and scars and they may act like they think they're more than, but, but so many of us carry the scars of less than. Like we're wearing that name tag, you know? And it's, it's impossible for me to say, you know, what name tag a certain person is wearing. You know, but I, but I do think that power differentials in our society are a real thing. Some people, myself included, you know, have more power and more privilege, you know, and I don't think that privilege needs to be such um, a negative all the time. Right? I, think, I think if you are willing enough to say that you have it, then you need to start using it, right? I mean, so it's something you can, you can use for the good of those around you who maybe don't have as much, right? 
So given that it's hard to sort of get rid of privilege, although I will tell you this, when you stand in solidarity with folks who, who maybe have less privilege than you, you're gonna lose yours too. And that's an important, important lesson. So I'm trying to think about how to answer your question and it's a little, it's a little tricky, right? So that being said about the power, I guess the one thing I would wanna say, everyone has scars and everyone has wounds. And, but I also think we have to address the issue that some people do have more power, some people do get more in life of, you are loved, you know, you are worthy of love, you're not less than. I think, that, I think that's real. Like for example, I think that for me as a white person, I get a lot of, oh, you're a worthy person. You know, you're, you're beloved, like you deserve dignity. People of color don't always have that, and I talk about that in the book, you know, because they've taught me that and I need to listen to that. And so those, those things are real too, right? Some people are taught to have more pride than others. The sort of Christian teaching on pride in, that, in the chapter that she's referencing, I go after it pretty hard. Like I chase it down and wrestle it to the ground because I was always taught, you know, C.S. Lewis is such a famous author and he's like, pride is the greatest sin. He actually says that in Mere Christianity, which is still a bestseller in the world. And it's like, okay, well for some people, pride, if I had a lot of, if I had a lot of um, self-love to begin with, too much pride, that's a problem. But what if I hate myself? What if I'm in an abusive relationship? What if I'm a person who is oppressed or, you know, sh shoved into the shadows as many people are into our, in our society? Maybe I need more pride and not less because people are not giving me that love, right, as a whole. Sure, my people might be, but not society. And so those are just important distinctions to make. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all teaching about, about pride, right? But I appreciate your, the compassion of saying, yeah, I think a lot of people who are walking around like that, they carry wounds too and probably need the message just as much. So. Now, I was surprised in the, in the chapter that, uh, that you're talking about with, with regard to pride, you mentioned that you were teaching a class and the Christian students in your class, they all agreed yeah. pride was the biggest sin. They did, yeah. And I, I, I had never heard such things. I, I, I didn't, was not aware. You're lucky, you're free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So was that a surprise to you or was that just like, oh, of course, that's... that's it, it wasn't a surprise so much, you yeah. know. I mean, I, t I taught a class um, on C.S. Lewis. That was a class on C.S. Lewis. And so we had just read that chapter in Mere Christianity. Yeah. And no one questioned it. And I just wanted them to question it. But they're smart. Because then when I really kept pushing, you know, I tell this story in the chapter, I'm like, but can you think of an example of where somebody being told that, that you know, pride is evil and pride is sin always, which is C.S. Lewis's teaching, there's mm -hmm. no qualification to it, it's always sin. Can you think of an example where that's bad? And, and my amazing uh, student um, raised her hand and she was like, well, I could see that if you were really depressed or you were in an abusive relationship and, and she used herself as an example, and she's like, or if you were suicidal, that'd be the worst possible thing anyone could say to you. Mm. And I was like, you got it. And mm. you know, it was a feminist theology that, that first came up with that idea, came up with that criticism you know, of that ancient teaching, so, mm. yeah. yeah. You know, at one point you, you say, um, in our day to call people and things by their right names is the new radicalism. Mm -hmm. 
And that, that's another idea I had not thought of, and, and could you say more about that? Sure. Well, I mean, think about how, what we call things or what we call people. You know, I don't know about you, but the word, the phrase illegal alien, what, I mean, we're talking about people. Like, these, these terms, ah, they're, they're just really troubling to me, you know, as a person and as a Christian. And so, in that chapter, I just talk about, has anyone here ever been called by the wrong name? Someone mispronounce your name? Someone call you the name you don't go by? Yeah, how's that feel? Somebody answer. Yeah, rough, not good, crappy, exactly. It feels awful, okay? So I use an experience of people call me by the wrong name all the time. And I kind of use that to say, people like, I will introduce myself, this is without fail, I'll introduce myself as Jacqueline, and two minutes later they're like, hey Jackie, right, you know? And when I was a kid, I let people do it, even though I didn't want to be called by that name, because I hadn't quite figured out that your name is something you got to claim for yourself. So I let people call me by the wrong name all the time, and my grandma called me by a totally different name, so I tell all that story. But I, I'm just trying to get to the point that names matter, and they matter a lot. And I really love how, you know, in Scripture, uh, God notices that names matter. Think about how many times in Scripture someone's name changes, because they have a whole new identity. And it made me think about, you know, I have a friend who's trans. And my trans friend was teaching me that the name that he had when he had a different gender identity um, was, you know, not the right name. And he calls that, he said in trans culture, we call that our dead name. Like, what was the name that we were given? And he had a whole new name. And he was like, I only go by this name. I'm not even going to tell you my dead name. I'm like, oh. See how powerful that is? Like, names are sacred. Like, we, our self is caught up in our names. And I do think that it's radical because if we start calling things different, it makes a difference. So I talk about a lot of my friends in the book who live in Fargo-Moorhead and who are what I like to call and what they prefer to be called New Americans. New Americans. But on my first day of teaching, even this year, my students were like, and I was like, do you know what a New American is? And they were like, not really. And I was like, immigrants and refugees is what we call them. But those are words that are very laden, right? But immigrants and refugees are new Americans. You know, you know, like that's what they are. And so just listen to, you know, this is what I want to play with, this idea that, that I do get, you know, from faith that names really matter and they're radical. And that's where, our, like, as you said, our identity and, and you look at scripture, the, think so. the name means something very specific. It means specific. something. Yeah. 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 Exactly, yeah. Chris. Yeah, uh, so one of the things that uh, is going around is you use kind of faith Bible Jesus talk to make the point that love has no limits. It's very clear from the book. Mm -hmm. um, but why do we need to work so hard to convince Jesus followers about this limit lo limitless love? I know, it's a great question. I, ha I don't know. <laughs> it seems like the biggest paradox of all time, doesn't it? So that's why I really appreciate this question. So thank you to whoever had asked that online. We shouldn't have to. We should not have to. This is a book that I wish that someday, I hope actually someday, that it will be useless. That you could just put it in a dumpster fire. You know, because it's, I shouldn't even have to write this. <laughs> you know? But we know that we do. I mean, we know that we have to tell these stories. And I just encourage everybody 
you know, who's here tonight or anyone who's listening, you have to tell your stories of love without limits because they matter. And the other thing is, people are trying to get you to not tell them. Why is that? Ask yourself. That means that the people in power who want us to not tell those stories, those people know that those stories have the power to change people. That's why they don't want you to tell it. Or otherwise, they'd be like, fine, go ahead and tell whatever you want. So never underestimate the power of your story. You know, I, if, I, if I knew how to change all the hearts in the world, I'd do it, right? Wish we had magic wands. But in the meantime, I think we just need to keep telling our stories. So your story matters, tell it. Oh, we do not hear any more questions. So. Oh, it's just dying. <laughs> They're making you do all the I work, know, Dave. I know, I know. You guys gotta try hard, you try harder next time. <laughs> yeah. I love you without limits anyway. <laughs> you know, you write about this, um, about the messy ambiguity and mm. complexity of life. Um, but many want to pretend it's, it's black and white. Uh, is our inability to acknowledge that two things can be true at the same time uh, at the core of a limited kind of love? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. I've always appreciated the quote from G.K. Chesterton where he said, you know what a paradox is? It's just the truth standing on her head trying to get your attention. Yeah. And a paradox is that, you know, two contradictory things that are both true at the same time. And I feel like as a Christian, I, I, and particularly as a Lutheran, I feel enabled to um, embrace paradox rather than just to reject it out of hand. I feel like the truth about life is it's a both and, you know? It's both stellar and really crappy, or another word that starts with S that I won't say. Um, you know, it's, 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 ugh, life is just so many things all at one time, right? So I feel if we could get more in touch with that both and nature of ourselves and in the both and nature of life and of other people, you know, it's really hard to accept that someone who has really hurt us very badly might be an amazing person in other people's minds. Mm -hmm. And the flip side of that is also so hard for us, right? That a person who's always been really great to me could have done this really awful thing. Mm -hmm. Instead, we go straight to, they're totally incapable of doing that. They would never do that. They would never hurt someone like that. They can't do that. And it's like, mm, yeah, that kind of forgets that everyone is a saint and a sinner, which is a core tenet of Lutheran theology. Yeah. And I'm, I'm appreciated because it's teaching me that about myself and about other people. And if I'm gonna extend mercy and grace to myself, I have to extend that to you. I have to extend that to the people, quite frankly, most of the time I don't wanna extend it to. In the, in the limits and the lines that, that you draw, that I draw, that we all draw, we don't yeah. want to do that. We and, don't um, wanna do that. But none of us are. None of us are flat characters. No. Three D. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Need to put on our three D glasses. See one another. <laughs> nice. It looks like. Uh... Oh, okay. Number two. Okay. Apparently, I'm. We have a request. Here comes number two. Okay. Um, Special request. So yeah. So this is this book is absolutely a case study on love and. It is. Um, and you were asked to cut the parts out about your LGBTQ friends mm -hmm. and your Muslim friends. Yep. Uh, it scandalized the original uh, publisher. 
So where have you been scandalized by uh, love and made aware of limits that you've drawn? <laughs> oh, God's doing to me that every day, right? That's happening to me every day that I'm always like figuring up. So a lot of the book you should know, um, if you haven't read it, it contains epic fails of my own uh, epic fails to love without limits. I, I am not good at it, and that's why I vow to keep trying, okay? So... I think it's important to share our epic fails of Love Without Limits. And so, do you want me to share one? Go for it. You want me to share one? Uh, so, do you want to share it? Well, they're horribly embarrassing. <laughs> uh, they're, it's, they're very bad. But I think it's, it's important you know, to share them maybe for that reason. So I'll just share one. These are hard to tell in public. It's easier to write it when you, when you don't have to see me. So there was this camp. In, in the North Carolina mountains that my husband and I went to uh, one summer, a lot of years back. And uh, we l loved it, you know, it's the perfect kind of thing where you hike and you ride bikes and you ride horses and you pray together and eat meals together. And it would have been really wonderful uh, that summer if it hadn't been for a certain family, the Batsons, I'll call them. Well, the Batsons, they were, they were a family that jumped up and down on my last nerve that summer. They had two little kids, and they were as cute as could be, but they were, they were like cougar cubs on cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> they ran around, they would like, you'd be trying to take your tray like back to the kitchen, they'd you know, headbutt you, and like, oh, it, it, was, it was a lot. And they never sat down. I was like, these kids, they're not even sitting during mealtimes, they're running around and like, you know, pulling on you and everything, and I was like, wow, wow. And, oh, and the worst part, though, was we would always have this, um, you know, thing in the evenings where we would have a worship service out in the woods. And it was that part of the day that you just so look forward to at camp. And it was the quieting down time. And I, we kind of felt like every night it felt a little ruined, right? Because the kids were running around and screaming and they would never sit down or sing the hymns. And I, am, am I, I should be clear, they were like five and six years old. And we felt that like they acted like they were two or three, you know? And we're like, gosh, can't their parents do something? Can't they rein them in? Oh, man. You know, so I was like, totally righteous. <laughs> what a mistake. So this one day, I was leading this Bible study, and I was just saying something like, you know, God always knows, like, what's going on with you. You know, God knows your story even when other people don't. And so the mom of these two kids, these two little girls, comes up to me and she's like, that's just like my little girls. And I'm like, what? Like, you know, like, I think I'm so open-minded. I'm like, oh yeah, people have a story. You know, you gotta understand that. But I didn't think of children as having a, a five and six-year-old as having a story, which shows you how epically I fail at love sometimes. So she starts telling me the story. She's like, well, you know, Annie and Maddie, they are biological sisters, but we adopted them when they were two and three. And their parents were drug addicts who made it a habit to just travel across the Carolinas, you know, from motel to motel. And when they wanted to have a few, go on a bender, you know, for a few days at a time, this was their answer. They didn't want to be bogged down by childcare or the cost of childcare. So they would strap the two little girls into their car seats in their hotel room. Oh yeah. And leave them there for two or three days at a time. And in order to, that they would not starve to death, they would pop two little bottles like with each car seat. 
and just leave them there unsupervised for days. And Justine was saying to me, she said, the thing was that Annie, because she was younger, you know, she figured out how to, to feed herself. These kids are survivors, you know, she was like, they figured out how to feed themselves, but the younger one could not figure out how to burp herself. It's not, it's not humanly possible, right, for a baby that's too small to get rid of her, to get rid of the gas, right? Babies need burped, we all know this. They're so uncomfortable otherwise. So this little girl, Annie, she was a survivor. She taught herself how to drink the bottle, but then she would get the gas, so she taught herself how to throw up every time after she ate. And Justine continues with the story. She's like, so Jacqueline, that's why my, my, my children, you know, they can't stand to ever be like, you know, tied in a chair. They just can't stand to sit down. I can't even really get them in a car seat. It's so difficult to even come here, you know, because of all this. And you can imagine, like I was like, if a person could drown in their own shame, I would be dead hmm. for how I had judged them, you know? And so we just have to remember always, and I use this to, to say the point that, an, and I'm quoting a, a famous philosopher on this point, an enemy is only a person whose story you don't yet know. Just remember that. Mm. And you experienced this at this camp, and you realized you know, where you had drawn a line, mm -hmm. then how do you extend yourself grace? How do you extend yourself the love in the aftermath of that. Yeah, uh, I think because of you, you know, because you let me tell it. Hopefully, you, you won't judge me forever, you know. I, I think that that's how we extend each other grace, is that is not by pretending that we're perfect or that we love without limits all the time, but by saying, you know what, I'm really not very good at this, but if we all got together and tried harder, we could do better. We could hold one another accountable. Yeah. And personally, as a teacher, I think when I tell my students the truth about that, and that was actually from a sermon I just preached at Concordia College, you know, when the book um, came out, on the day it came out, I preached that sermon, and I told, those, I told several stories like that. Then I feel like people who are younger than us, they're able to say, oh, you know what? I've done that too, and I have to extend myself grace, or that person, I need to go back to them and apologize. And several of the things that happened when I was writing this book, I was struck with how awful I had been. And I actually found people. I didn't find Gus Tate, which is so bad. He is like not on social media, he is unfindable, which is so depressing, but I'm really hoping that someone's gonna find him and they're gonna write to me and it's gonna be amazing. But I did find one friend that I, you know, like this friend I was just talking about, that I had epically failed and I, and no one had ever heard of her, from her since high school, and I think we had shunned her. And I thought, you know, I need to reach out to her because I used to have not very accepting views at all about LGBTQ, you know, people. And I'm very ashamed of that now. It's something I'm ashamed of. But by writing, I'm able to heal from that shame and share it. And one of the things that happened, though, was like, I need to find her. I was writing about how I'd hurt her, you know by not understanding where she was coming from and by just, you know, buying into the Christianity I'd always heard growing up. And I found her. 
and she forgave me. And I tell that story. It's like a postscript in the book. I'm like, and I found her. And sure enough, you know, um, she's married to a woman very happily. And I actually had dinner with her not too long ago. Fantastic. And it was Fantastic. really beautiful. Yeah, so great. other people extend us grace. I exactly. Think. Exactly. Looks like Chris has a question. Yeah, so we got another one online. Uh, thinking back to that story from just a couple minutes ago, yeah. um, how do you think we can best apply this idea of love without limits? How can we uh, engage in, in real conversation and, and relationship with people who have experienced something really challenging or trauma? Uh, what, what tools can we use to bring those stories out so we can understand better? Yeah, yeah, we have got to listen. <laughs> we have got to create a space for people's laments you know, we've got to sit down with people who are different from us. And I know that sucks. You know, if you're like me, your, ho your holiday dinner table is like tumultuous. You know, it's so scary. Somebody's always going to be outraged. Um, we have to try to have some of those conversations is, is what I'm going to say to you. And if you can't always have those conversations about the things that are controversial, challenge yourself to find a shared humanity with that person. This is what I do lately. When people are talking, you know, I think that my instinct when someone is saying things that I absolutely disagree with, what's happening in my head is this. Like, I'm just reloading. Like, I just can't wait for them. I can't wait for them to stop talking so I can, like, fire back. Like, you know, this is very violent. You know, so instead, lately, what I do, and it, and it you know, admittedly, it takes all of my self-control. But seriously, while they're talking, I'll be like, "Okay, why do you believe that so strongly?" And it gets back to your point, your excellent question from before, because I would say, nine times out of ten, that person's got some story, right? Again, not maybe a story I would embrace all aspects of, but it is a true story. And you listen to it and you're like, okay, okay. Well, let me tell you why I believe the opposite of that, because I've got a story too. So my students and I, when we do interface studies, we actually prepare our story. You know, we have to be good storytellers. We have to work at this. Like we like set timers and we're like, in three minutes, you know, talk about your religious identity in a way that you could easily share that with someone and, and why you're so passionate about it, you know, in a way that we can share it. So I think that's some of the things that we have to do, right? We have to be willing to not only, you know, love across them, you got to talk across difference. You got, you got to search for that shared humanity. And I don't care if it's just that that person once, um, you know, like ate at the same pizza restaurant as you. Find something. Like there has to be something that you can see about them. And then challenge yourself to say it out loud. This is another thing I do with my students. When we're really, it's really getting heated, you know, and people are really disagreeing, I'll be like, stop. I'll say, okay. Sorry, am I losing my mic? Cut. Okay, Good. just making sure. Um, I'll say, okay, stop. And so-and-so, you have to say what she just said in terms that she would understand. And then they try to do it. And of course, they didn't listen closely enough. We don't listen closely enough. And then there's laughter, you know, kind of breaks the tension. And the person will be like, that's not what I said. That's, that's not what I said. You know, and here's what I said. And then we started again. So being able to actually just compassionately articulate someone else's perspective even when it is not your own, is already a huge milestone. And that's not that you agree with it. And then my final point on this would be always remembering the distinction that has existed for all time between understanding and agreement. They are not 
the same. And I guarantee you that every one of you amazing humans in this room loves somebody that you do not agree with on 100% of everything. So you are capable of this. You can do this. Love demands only understanding, not agreement. I can understand you even though I disagree. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm also hearing something of what you're saying, of, uh, the, just the need for boundaries. Yeah. I mean, love is not Skittles and unicorns. <laughs> And it also yeah, it's not. needs boundaries. It does need boundaries. Yeah, sometimes we need to love from a distance. We do. This is also true, too. We have to really care about the safety of, of some of us and our brothers and sisters, and I mean that in the widest sense. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I do say in the book, and I'm speaking about abusive relationships, which is the kind of home I grew up in, is that a love without limits does not mean a life without limits. I don't think those are the same. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to love people, but because love, I, I compare love to a, a chandelier. Like, love is not a rug that you walk on, right? That's, we, we wanna walk on people and that's wrong. Love is a chandelier, and if it's a chandelier, it casts light on everyone in the room and that includes you. And that means sometimes we have to practice self-love, coming back to the previous discussion. Mm -hmm. And that might mean that we have to leave. And I think that's okay too, because otherwise you're excluded, then the exception is you. Like what about love for yourself when people are abusing us or hurting us in a way that is just unacceptable, robbing us of our dignity? We have a right to dignity as well. Yeah. So we have to have limits. Okay. I just see a question oh, up yay. here. Yay! <laughs> so um, your story about you and Gus yes. and the fact of like children are without limits in lots of ways, right? right? So in this context of the world seems so foreboding and, mm -hmm. and how we want to nurture children in yeah. this world of love without limits, could you speak to a couple of things for yourself personally that you connect as a uh, good guiding thoughts that we can be doing as adults because I mean this book is written a lot for adults right <laughs> because kids bit, can do this bit, yes. in such a natural way yes um, that we cannot so if you could speak a little bit to how we can as adults be mm. sure that we're curating an environment and what we could be doing and how we're um, enlisted in mm -hmm. order to mm. to help continue that Enlisted, what a beautiful question, and what a beautiful word that you use. Like, we, we are enlisted. We're the enlisted, everyone. No, I love that. Well, one of the things that I think is actually backed up by research and by my experience, which is that when we have the chance to meet somebody who's different, right, uh, that, and we, have, and we develop a friendship with them, which is so important, I think, for our children, you know, like if you have a Muslim friend or maybe you're not that close with them, invite them over. Let your children meet them and their kids. That will, that will change them for a lifetime. When people develop friendships, all the social science research has proven that when people have one friend of another faith, their entire view of that faith changes towards the positive. Now, seven out of 10 Americans don't know a Muslim. Right there's your problem, right? They can't, there's a single story being told about Muslims and that is what? If I say the word Muslim, what do most people think of? Just play word association with me for one second. That, there you go. See how easy that was? 
That's terrible. That's a single story that can perpetuate itself because people don't have Muslim friends. You know, like I introduce, you know, readers and my students to Muslims. Like my class actually goes out and we work with new Americans weekly because that will change you. And then you should see by the end of the semester, nobody is able to just stand on that one whatever stereotype or media soundbite that they were living off of. Because they'll be like, well, that's not actually true for my friend Jasmine. I mean, she was saying that, you know, she wears the headscarf, which is, is actually true for one of my friends in the story. Um, she wears the headscarf because she's a feminist. Just totally true, true story of like a student who came, Hannah, I don't think you were in that class, but you were in that class. Oh my gosh, isn't that beautiful? Like one of my former students is here tonight, which like makes me so, so happy. She was there. I'm telling the truth, aren't I? This amazing, amazing friend of mine, I, I brought the friend to the class because I'm like, we're not just going to talk about Islam like an abstraction. You know what Islam is? It's 1.6 billion people and a lot of them are our neighbors and all of them are our brothers and sisters. So let's meet them and let's talk it out. Right? And she said that she, you know, she wears the veil, wears the headscarf, wears hijab and she was like, yeah, I wear this because I'm a feminist and I don't want people at work. She works at Sanford Health. She's like, I don't want people at work judging me, like, you know, uh, for my, my looks or for the, the size of my chest. She's like, I want them judging me for my character. We're all like, wow. <laughs> like, you know, and I have heard so many Muslims say that. Like, that's not even uncommon. That is completely common for Muslim American women to be like, I wear this head covering, not because I have to, duh. Like, don't have to, but, but because it's, it's part of my, my taking a stand as a woman and being a feminist. So, introducing people. I think if we're going to be curators, if we're going to be the enlisted, the enlisted has got to be diverse, you know? And so many people. I just think it's so important. You know, my friend, she's got children, and it's just so beautiful. She always invites, like, our, our gay friends over to, like, hang out with her kids. That's powerful. And she's like, oh, yeah, this is Brian and Bob. They're a couple. You know, our kids are, like, six. Think of that, and they just think that is the most normal thing in the world. Like that that's always existed. They, they love them, they play, they play soccer. And I just sit there watching them like, oh yeah, that, that's how you change the world right there. Friendship, transgressive friendships, which is a term from Brian McLaren that I love. Friendship is the most subversive thing we've got going. Just bring friends over for your kids. I had a Jewish friend growing up, changed my whole life I think. Changing the world with friendship and love seems like a great place to land, yeah. but I'll give you the last word. What, should, what else should we, we hear about? What else should we know? What, mm. do, what do you want to leave us with here? I'm going to leave you with just a super short thing that I wanted to share with you. So I made the story, the Facebook post now is part of the book. In case you were wondering, I feel like it became part of the book's life to tell it. So the, the front page of the book is now the story of me with the duct tape. <laughs> so it's become part of the book's life. But at the end of the book, then I actually tell the story of how my amazing Facebook squad uh, managed to sell the book. And I say that that taught me six things about hope. I had lost hope, and, and I see now that that was wrong, but, but those amazing people gave it back to me. And just you turning up tonight, it also gives me back hope. So thank you so much for that. So if you just give me like one minute, I'll just read to you the six things that I learned from this whole experience about hope. Number one, your story matters. Tell it. Number two, 
Cornell West was right. Now more than ever, what the world needs most is more people who are not for sale. Number three, never, never cave to the lie that you can't make a difference. Even a click or a share can jumpstart a heart. Number four, at times you may feel powerless. Yes, but you're not. The power to tell the tale of why you feel powerless and who made you feel powerless never leaves you. Number five, hope is a map. If you ever lose yours, you can always share mine. What matters is that we all find our way home. And last but not least, number six, hope wins always. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. If you want to stay up to date with all the things that we've got going on in the Sandbox, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. And we'd absolutely love to hear from you. So let us know what you think about the podcast. And if you'd like, rate and review us on iTunes. It helps a lot. And just join us in the conversation. Yeah. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it, because there's always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time, we'll see you. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.